says the word, the word of the Lord. And I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you lose on earth will be loosed in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. All right, let us have our seats. Recently, I saw a sermon uh, from a man whose name shall not be named because some of us will know him. But he was recently elevated to, from being a pastor or a reverend to a bishop. So he came back to the congregation. I think this happened on um, a Saturday. That's going to be a bit distracting. That's going to be blowing into my mind. So he came on. I think the, the ordination was done on a Saturday. And so, you know, church people were involved. They had, you know, helped him to, to they had supported him and, and done a lot. So when he came, you know, there was shout, when it was Sunday, there were shouts of joy. He had come. He was wearing his um, uh, bishop regalia. And he was wearing his cap. He was talking about how, actually, this thing really fits me, right, doesn't it? People were clapping, doing everything. So, you know, I mean, for a few minutes, people were clapping, just hailing, and he was so happy. And so he thanked everyone that had supported. They clapped. They were happy. He acknowledged people here and there. They were clapping. The thing was, but, you know, at some point, you start getting tired of the clapping. So you could notice the energy was dying a little bit. So he now got to the point, I think, was now the centerpiece of what he was going to say. And he then said, because he was about to give a sermon, he says, this is going to be my first official assignment as a bishop. To be the congregation, at this point, there was no, nobody really responded. Like, hey, now, why did we come here before? Of course, that's what it is. But he had said it in a way that that was meant to be the place where everybody was meant to go, woo! So they all went mute. And then the man said, won't you clap for me? <laughs> he said, please clap for me now. <laughs> so they all started clapping. And when I saw that, immediately I said, this man could not be presiding over a healthy church. Why? Because it was obvious. The church was all about him. I don't know if you're leading a church or you're leading a ministry, but let me ask you the question. Who is the main focus of your ministry? Who is the overall leader of your ministry? Now, even if I had just normal church people here, lay church people here, everybody is going to say, God, you are going to say, Jesus. You know, we Nigerians, we know how to, and for Nigerians and Africans, we know how to do exam because we cram. We just give, you know what cram means now? Huh? Just, just give the answer the way it is. When I was in school, when uh, maybe we go for tutorials, and we say, why is this thing this way? Somebody's explaining. He said, why? why? I'm not sure. Why is it this way? You know what you say? You say, it's babe. 
Babel means just take it like that. So you just give the answer that the people that the, the examiner wants, whether you understand it or not. So if I gather church people and say, who is the focus of ministry? Who is the head of the church? You say, Jesus. Babe. Just like that. So I'm sure we're all smart enough. We are the ones that have taught them that. And so we too will say, it's Jesus and it is God. Why? You see, I said his church was most, almost certainly not going to be healthy. You know why? Because it was a man-centered church. If your church is going to be healthy, it has to not just be large, not just wonders happening here and there. The church has to be gospel-centered. The only way your church is going to be healthy in the way God understands it, is that it has to be gospel-centered. Now, if it is gospel-centered, then it will be God-focused. If it's gospel-centered, it will be God-focused. Now, I asked you, I said, why should it be that way? Now, maybe you will quote Matthew 16, verse 18 to 19 that I read. Because Jesus says, I will build my church. Who does the church belong to? Right? I will build my church. Not I will build your church. So many people are looking for God to build their church. I will build my church. So you say, I, point, I can point to Matthew 16 for you. You won't be wrong. But I would say this, that it's not just Matthew 16 that teaches that. The whole sweep of the Bible teaches it. In fact, if you notice what he says, after I will build my church, he directly ties it to the kingdom. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. So, if that church has to be gospel-centered and God-focused, it has to be Christ-centered because Christ is the head of the kingdom. So what I want to do this first morning is to take us through a sweep of the Bible theologically. So this first talk is theological, is theological, right? The others will be much more practical, but this is much more theological. We put it in the first, it has to be the first talk because we put it after lunch. There's no, there's no, somebody said about a, a particular speaker in France. He said, the man was so boring, he said, if you were, awake when he was speaking, you slept. If you were sleeping when he, was, he started speaking, you would die. <laughs> so I have, we've set it up so that this particular one will be the very, very top of the morning, where we're all bright and, and I think there even may be some coffee, just, just in case you need it. But I would ask you, you know, you have to be your brother's keeper, okay? There's a, you know the, what they call the fanning spirit? You know, anytime you are, you've seen it in your church now. You are talking, you think you are on fire, and then you see somebody. You know it has nothing to do with you. It's a spirit. They are finding them. All right? So be your brother's keeper. It says that you, whatever you bind on earth, and whatever you lose. So if we are going to bind the finding spirit here, you keep your brother awake, amen? Or you keep your sister awake. All right. So we're going to look at what it means to be. Today, we're going to look at a gospel-centered theology for the church, and we're looking at a Christ-centered church. Tomorrow, we'll look at it as well, 
part two, but then we'll be looking at a spirit-filled church, okay? So we're going to go through a lot of scriptures, and we should be done in just about an hour. All right. So let us start. Have you ever wanted to sound deep? Now again, it's pastor, so I shouldn't even be asking that question. After some point saying, Jesus Christ is Lord, Jesus Christ is a king, Jesus Christ is risen for, it sounds boring, so we want to sound deep. And so, I don't know if you have met someone who for years told me that there is a difference between there is faith in Christ, but there is the faith of Christ. You understand? We start with the faith in Christ, but there is the faith of Christ. You have to move to that one. Do you know the difference? See me later. I'll, I'll show you. Or some of us is like the Logos and the Rema. Or there's the gospel of salvation. That's not bad. But there's the gospel of the kingdom. But I want to show you one that you've not seen before today. <laughs> what is the difference between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God? Mm, mm, you like that, I mean? You're already like, mmm. You don't know what the answer is, but you know there's something coming. Because there's a difference. The kingdom of God, yes, but there's the kingdom of heaven. Because Jesus did not say, I will give you the kingdom, the keys to the kingdom of God. He said, I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. So what's the difference? Let me show you the difference. Matthew, uh, Matthew chapter, okay, Matthew 4.17 and Mark 1.15. Compare the two of them. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Matthew 4.17. In Mark, Jesus also said, the time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe. The good news. See it? Kingdom of heaven there, kingdom of God. I'll show you another one. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But in Luke 6, 20, he says, looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Have you seen the difference? <laughs> Let me tell you specifically. The difference is that there is no difference. <laughs> that was deep too, right? <laughs> you're, still, you're still thinking about it. Sometimes we get caught up in all these yeah. little minutiae and we build up things to make them fresh because we want to excite people and we are not faithful to the word of God. I put that there because whether it's kingdom of heaven I'm talking about, kingdom of God, we're talking about the same thing. Really, the kingdom of heaven, you'd only find Matthew writing about the kingdom of heaven. And there are, def there are one or two reasons, maybe for theological focus, that I use it. Now, Matthew sometimes uses the kingdom of God, but he's the only one that says the kingdom of heaven. However, when you look at the three synoptic writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, many times you see the reference is the same. So it is just the fact that sometimes Matthew is referring to God in heaven. The kingdom is in heaven. You understand that? So, at some point, I may quote one or two scriptures that is like pointing to the kingdom of heaven. I'm using both of them interchangeably, but they are the same thing. But I will use mainly the kingdom of God. 
So when Jesus comes in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, and he says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. What did he mean by that kingdom? Is this different from the gospel of salvation, as we said? What did he mean by the kingdom? Is it that when you get saved, you are saved, you will go to heaven, but when you want to live the life here on earth, in ascending to certain positions, that is now you've entered into the kingdom of heaven. So I want us to look at this thing, as I said, throughout the Bible. When you read your Bible, sometimes we've made mistakes of trying to put our theology together by, I heard this verse here, and I heard that word that sounds like, oh, I heard it in Matthew, just the verse, Matthew 4, 17. I think it sounds very similar to Ezekiel 3, verse 12. And then it has something to do with Exodus. And so we put everything together. And actually, we are not following how the Bible wants us to think about our theology. You see, there's a reason why the books are ordered in the way they are, they are ordered. There's a reason why some of the books, even though some come before some, they are sectioned together in a certain way. So I'm hoping that if we walk through, we'll be able to see the Christ-centered part of this kingdom. So where is the kingdom? If you have a kingdom... You have a domain, kingdom, king dominion. The king has a domain over which he exercises dominion. Where is it? Well, it depends on the text you are reading. For instance, if you read Psalm 103, verse 19, it tells you this. The Lord has established his throne in heaven, and his kingdom rules over all. At that point, the dominion is over the entire world. But when you read John chapter 3, verse 3 and 5, where Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, he says, Jesus replied, very, very, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom unless they are born again. Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom unless they are born of water and spirit. With the first one, the kingdom is over all. The rule is over all. In the second one, there are people that can see it and enter. There are people that cannot see and enter. So on the one hand, in the first reference, the kingdom was non-exclusive. It didn't exclude anyone. In the second reference, it is very exclusive. Unless, he says, unless something happens to you, you cannot be in the kingdom. Amen? So we're looking really at the second one. When we talk about the kingdom of God and Jesus, when he says, repent and believe, in other words, he's saying something has to happen for you to enter into the kingdom. So we're talking about this exclusive kingdom. And if I want to quickly give a quick definition before we go on, it is the saving and restorative rule of God over his people through the work of his chosen Messiah, Jesus. It's probably there. The saving, the saving and restorative rule of God over his people through the work of his chosen Messiah and incarnate Son, Jesus. So, let's start. There are four things I want you to see that if we are going to have this kingdom, there are four things we need to see or four elements of the kingdom that are always present. One is people. The people. Second is the commandments or the precepts. Third is the place. And four is the presence. God has to have a people to rule over. But the rule is mediated through laws or precepts, and these are done in a specific place where God can manifest his presence. People, precepts, place, presence. So let's start seeing how this kingdom develops. 
Adam and Eve, the very first people in Genesis. It says God created them, and when God created them, he created them in his image. Remember, he had created many things before he created them. Then he comes on the sixth day, and then he says the apex of his creation. He's created many things, but the apex of his creation, he said he created man and woman in his image. And then he says something. He says, he blessed them, and he told them, have what? Dominion over the other things I have created. So they were to exercise some kind of rule. But after that, he said to them, because he placed them in a garden, he said, you will, the Garden of Eden, he says, all the trees that are here, you can eat. Every one of them, except one. Don't eat of this tree, because if you eat of this tree, there will be consequences. What was he doing? He was giving them what? A precept. He placed them in a garden, a place. He exercised his dominion over them, a precept. The two of them were the people. And God in that garden used to walk with them in the cool of the day, his presence. At the very outset of creation, when God created people in his image, you can already see the miniature expression of his kingdom there. Do you see it? Now, even though God told them to have dominion over the fish of the sea and birds of the earth, the people who were to exercise dominion over those things were themselves under the dominion of God. Do you understand? So that their, the expression of their own dominion was a derivative dominion. Some of us are senior pastors here. Right? You also have associate pastor. Right? At some point, the associate pastor preaches. He preaches a fantastic sermon. So that's good. Well done, my boy. He preaches another one. Wonderful. Then on the third one, somebody wants to introduce him and they say, ah, this associate pastor is my favorite pastor in this church. You know what that is? Senior pastor has slain his thousands. The associate pastor has slain his what? That's when we now start saying, I think you should move to another branch. <laughs> but you see, the associate pastor has some authority, but his authority is connected, is derivative from the senior pastor. This creation were created in the image of God. They had dominion, but their dominion was not a dominion they had in and of themselves. It was given to them. And so long they exercised, they were under the authority of the true king, then they would exercise their dominion in the right way. So long they did that, God could say, I bless you, be fruitful, multiply, and replenish the earth, and all will go well. But of course, we know that didn't happen. They eventually wanted to be their own kings. They eventually wanted to be their own gods. And he told them there will be consequences for this. So what did he do? He banished them from the place. And by banishing them from the place, he was banishing them from his presence. He was exiling them. And when he exiled them from his presence, what eventually happened was the place of blessing that they were in, he exiled them to a place of the curse. Curse is the ground for your sake. So initially, at the very outset of the Bible, God's kingdom was expressed over a holy couple. But now this holy couple became unholy from what they did, and now they are banished outside the presence of God. The consequences of this were massive. Because think about it. 
If they stayed under, they were under the dominion of God, they were in a place of blessing, they would have continued to flourish. Now they are outside of the presence of God. Now they are in the place of a curse. Now they are outside this exclusive kingdom. What is going to happen? Because these people are the primal pair of creation. Every other person that was born after them was not born in the garden, was born outside of the garden. And so the DNA of sin was also in them such that from the very outset, in, 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 as David said, in sin did my mother conceive me. Everyone that comes after now, if God was to exercise his judgment over them by the way they obey his law, they are now outside of God king, God's kingdom. They will only face condemnation. And that's the state we find in Genesis chapter 3. In other words, the work of the kingdom then, after, must take on the ability to save the people from this fate. This fate where all people are now going to be condemned. Because we see what happens after. Immediately they give birth to children, one of them is a murderer. And as time went on, over and over, in fact, by the time you get to Genesis chapter 6, it says, look, the heart of man is bent to always do wickedness. So God destroyed all and left eight. After the eight, of the eight that were left, two of them were laughing at the nakedness of their father. One of them was cursed. Eventually, they give birth to more people. There are these nations. The nations gather together. They want to oppose God by building their own city and building a monument and building their own systemic religion to oppose God. So God came down, judged them, and this was the judgment of the nations. God cursed them. So what is God going to then do? How is this thing going to develop? How is it going to change? What about the promise of God to bless? He blessed the creation that he gave, that he, created, he made. This is where Abraham and his family now come into the scene. Because in Genesis chapter 11, remember, God has cursed the nations that he told us about in Genesis chapter 10. And so by the time he calls Abraham, he says, look, the whole world is already cursed. But I'm going to use you to do something different. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Abraham, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will do what? Remember before they were cursed. I will bless you, but the blessing that I'm going to give to you has a specific purpose. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the people of the earth who are now cursed will be blessed through you. So the mess that had been created between Genesis 1 and 11, God is saying through Abraham, I am now going to overturn it by blessing the world through you. Now, but the way he's going to do it, if you notice in verse 2, he says, I will make you a great nation. So on the one hand, God tells you what he's going to do through Abraham. But on the other hand, there is the strategy of how he's going to do that. What is he going to do through Abraham? He is going to bless the nations through Abraham. What's the strategy? Ah, that starts to unveil. But he gives us a hint in Genesis 12. He says, 
I will make a great nation out of you. At this point, he's childless. The guy's like, no, nation, okay. I just want a child. He says, no, I'll make a nation through you. And I'll take you to a land. Now, at this point, like, okay, where is it? What happens? Now, don't forget, if you read the book of Genesis, God appears to Abraham four times. 12, 15, 17, 22. Okay? Now, let's keep 15. It's in 15, he says that, um, I am your shield and your exceeding great reward and all those, those things. But in 17, it says, when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. How can he do that? God has to give him precepts by which he should walk by. That's why in chapter 18, he says that I know that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. So Abraham had precepts that God had given him. He was going to show him a land that he was going to, um, he was going to give to him. But he did this by appearing to Abraham, his presence. And don't forget, what was he going to do? He was going to instruct his household, these people. So God said to Abraham, I'm back in uh, verse uh, 1 of chapter 17, walk before me and be blameless. But in verse 6 he says, now about his wife, Sarah, I will bless her and will surely give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations, not nation, nations, Kings of peoples will come from her. So get the strategy. I'm going to give you an offspring from your wife, a miracle baby because she was like 90 years. And the way I'm going to do this, I'm going to bless the world through you, but I'm going to do it by making a nation through you, and also kings will come in this lineage. Are we getting it? So in other words, we see that the promise to bless the nations through Abraham had the strategy of establishing a kingdom through Abraham's offspring or seed through his wife Sarah. Do we understand that? God is going to bless, he's going to create nations, but also kings will come in the lineage. If there are kings that will come, then that means that there is a kingdom that the kings will rule over. So God is saying... I have not finished with the issue of the kingdom. It's going to come through this blessing of Abraham and his offspring. And so now we take the offspring. So what happens? Abraham, you know, he first listened to, he tried to, he tried to rush the thing. So he had the child, Ishmael. It wasn't by Sarah. God said the promise is through Sarah. So he had a child, Isaac. Isaac had two children. But the one through whom the promise was going to come, the election line, was Jacob. Because the, young, the older shall serve the younger. All right. So Jacob then had 12 children. And then of those 12 children, one of them was sold into slavery. He goes into Egypt. He is first in prison. He eventually rises up to the second in command to Pharaoh. And then when you get to the end of Genesis, he has now reconciled with his father, the family is now larger, and then we hear in Genesis chapter 50, verse 22, and also Exodus chapter 1, verse 5, Joseph stayed in Egypt along with his father's family. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. 
in the first instance with Adam and Eve, the kingdom of God was over a holy couple. By the end of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus, the kingdom of God is over a holy family. It's advancing. It's developing. Now, I said that end of Genesis and beginning of Exodus. Don't forget, because Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Leviticus, Numbers are five books, but it's one compendium, right? What we call the Pentateuch, written by Moses. So you are meant to see a storyline developing there. So now, this holy family stays in Egypt. Over 400 years, right, the first flourish, and over 400 years, they grow and grow in number because God had promised Abraham that your descendants will be like the sand of the seashore. They now become so powerful in the nation that people start saying in Egypt, start saying, ah, we don't like this. It gets to the king, Pharaoh. And Pharaoh did not know Joseph. And so now they're in slavery. And after they're in slavery, they cry out to God. God sends them a deliverer, Moses. Moses comes, the ten plagues, as you know, and eventually delivers the people from Pharaoh through the Red Sea. And now they are the mountain of Sinai. These people that came from the family of God. And God now says to them, because I'm going to do something with you in chapters 20 to 24, which is I'm going to establish a covenant with you. But why am I going to establish a covenant with you? Because I want to give you a new identity. Exodus chapter 19. You yourselves have seen, verse 4, what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me, Commandments. So in this thing, he's going to establish with them a covenant. He's going to give them commandments. If you obey me and my covenant, then out of all nations, you would be my treasured possession. God elected Israel. Not because they were great, just because he chose them. In the same way that he just chose Abraham. In the same way that he just chose Isaac and not... In the same way he chose Abraham, not his brother. In the same way he chose Isaac, not Ishmael. In the same way he chose Jacob, not Esau. In the same way he chose Joseph, or maybe Judah, and not the rest. In the same way now, he's now saying, I'm choosing you to be my treasured possession. Although all the earth is mine, you will be to me... What would you be? What would you be? A, not just treasure position, but you will be to me a kingdom of priests. A kingdom of priests. So God wants to establish a covenant with them. He has just saved them by grace. You know, the deliverance in, uh, from the um, Red Sea was a salvation by grace. Why? Because what did God tell them when, when the chariots of Pharaoh were coming? What the uh, chariots of Pharaoh were coming? What did Moses say to them? Stand and see. Don't do anything. You can't understand and see the salvation of the Lord. So he did not give them commandments before saving them. He saved them before he gave them commandments. So now he wants to establish his covenant with them. There's going to be agreements. There are going to be laws. He has taken them out of Egypt because Egypt is not their land. God has promised Pharaoh a land. He's taking them to the land, the promised land. But now he wants to make them a distinct kingdom, his own possession. And so he's going to establish a covenant with them. He says, you have to obey me. And if you obey me, and if you go on well, you would be to me a kingdom of priests. All of them, a kingdom of priests. What do you mean by priests? Well, priests were these individuals that on the one hand, 
they were like an, uh, an intermediary. Uh, um, they, they, yes, an intermediary in between. You know, uh, which one will I use as intermediary now? Huh? Yeah, before I'm trying to give an example. What do you budget call allow you know? Somewhere in the middle, you know, if you are trying to get, uh, you are trying to get two people together. You understand? You know, some of you don't have many married people in your, in your church. So sometimes you say, ah, can I be a facilitator? You know, you see sister, can you there? Ah, that sister. And you see that brother, brother, ah, sister, brother. Okay, so there's a problem. Sister is there. Brother is there. How do I bring them together? The way I bring them, ah, who is even the person talking? Me. So I'm the one, sister, brother, who is in the middle? So who is going to bring them together? Me. I am the alarino. I'm in the middle. I will mediate between brother, that sister. Does she have the spirit of God? Which no. <laughs> That's why you're not still married. Does she have the spirit of God? You say yes. She's serving church. Is there anything wrong with her? There's nothing. Sister, that brother, does he have the spirit of God? Yes. Is there anything wrong with him? Yes. Oh, yeah, two of you. What's wrong with you? <laughs> and when they find out that there's nothing wrong, six months later, you join them together. You have done the job of a mediator that has brought them together. You understand what I mean? I understand. You now understand. <laughs> now, God has his people. He needs someone in between. Do you understand? You are going to be my treasure possession. But then, priests are the ones that are intermediaries between God and his people. They are like human meeting places between God and his people. So, but God is saying all of them will be kingdom of priests. So how is he going to be mediated between them? Now, in Exodus 25, verse 8, God says this. Remember, we have spoken about land. They are going there. They have spoken about the commandments, Right? But there's the issue of presence. So God says in Exodus 25, 6, 7, 8, eventually he says, build me a sanctuary. Why? So that I may dwell among my people. Because how would you know that these are the people of God except God is in their midst? So this sanctuary is now called a tabernacle. It's a mobile temple because they are not yet in their land. When they get to their land, they build a solid temple. Now, in this tabernacle, this is where God is going to dwell among them. The people that will deal with the sacred things of the tabernacle will be these priests and the tribe that he chose, the Levites. Now, when you are choosing the Levites, they counted the children of Israel. I think this is in Numbers chapter 3, I'm not, if I'm not mistaken. They counted the number of people of Israel. And they made sure that, and all the firstborns, they made sure that um, the same number of the firstborns and the same number of all the Levites tallied. When there was a difference, they paid some redemption money. So this is the way the Levites represented the whole kingdom and made it as though they were a kingdom of priests. So what did they do? They, they represented God before the people by doing the holy, if you like, the holy work of the sanctuary. Do you understand what I mean? All the other 11 tribes were not allowed to do the holy work of the sanctuary in the tabernacle except the Levites. And it was from the Levites that you then had the priest family that then ministered inside the holy place 
and then you had the high priest that ministered inside the Holy of Holies. So the priest represented uh, the people before God. Amen? But more crucially, the, the priest also represented God before the people. They will come out from God's presence, and if God is favorable to them, what would he do? He will bless them. And so he says to Aaron, this is what you will say to my people. The Lord bless you. The Lord keep you. The Lord cause his face to shine upon you. The Lord be gracious unto you, and the Lord lift up his countenance upon you, and the Lord give you peace. In other words, the priests were meant to mediate God's blessings to the people. They taught the people the law, but they mediated God's blessings to the people, showing you that God is in their midst. But there's one other office that you have to talk about. Remember that Abraham was, was promised to Abraham that kings will come from your loins. After the people then get into the land, they are ruled over by judges. That didn't go well at all. Right? It's in the judges that it says that everyone did as they want. So eventually they wanted a king. They got a king that they wanted. It didn't work well at all. Then God now chose a king after his own heart and then established a covenant with him. So he said to David in 2 Samuel verse 7, when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up for you, you up, um, I will raise up your offspring to succeed your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one that will build the house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. You know why? Remember, he said that your son will build a house for me. That's, so eventually, Solomon built the temple. Do you know why in Psalm 48, Jerusalem is called the city of God and the city of the great king? It's because when Solomon built his palace, you know what he built? He built the palace and he built the house of God, side by side in Jerusalem. Why? What he was saying was, I am a king, it's true, a human king, but I am the son of the true king, not just David. Because whoever was the king in David's line was also called the son of God. At his coronation, he became the son. That is what Psalm 2 is all about. When he says, you are my son, today I have begotten thee. It's not like God is giving birth to a child. It is that God is saying, this person that was not the king, Davidic king today, has now, in his ascension to the throne, become the Davidic king. So he is my son. He is my son because he stands in my stead to mediate my rule. In the palace is the human king, but in the temple is the true king. Why? Because God is enthroned in between the two cherubims on the ark, the mercy seat on the ark. The mercy seat is like the throne of God here on earth. Is this, is this confusing? Remember in the garden when they were banished, how many cherubims were there? Two cherubims away from the presence of God. And now in the holiest place of all, in the most sacred furniture, there is this seat that then has cherubims again there. And it's called the mercy. It's a seat like the throne of God. And that is in the temple where God manifests his presence. So that the king in that palace can remember, 
You are not the true king. This city of God is not the city of your name. It is my, king, my, my city. It is the city of the great king. So whilst the priests mediated the blessings of God to the people, the king mediated the rule of God to the people. Amen. God always had mediators in his kingdom here on earth. So by the time you get to David and Solomon's time, you now have the kingdom of God set up. A people with a covenant in a land, with a temple that has God's presence, with a king that is mediating his rule, and they had the book of the Lord that gave them the precepts to walk by. And that's why in Psalm, 7, in Psalm 67, it tells you about Israel. It says that the Lord be gracious unto us and the Lord bless us. So that when the Lord blesses us, what is going to happen? That your ways may be known on the earth, your salvation among the nations. Remember, what did God say to Abraham? I will bless the nations through you. If these people walk by his, by his commandment, he will bless the nations through them. But what if they just, the kings went away? What if the priests went away? Well, God will judge them. And guess what? Have you read the book of Kings lately? One Kings, two Kings. What were they doing? Going astray, astray, astray. Forsaking the temple, building high places, building altars, and they were sacrificing to other gods. And as they were doing that, the people were going astray. This ultimately led to the overthrow of the Davidic monarchy, the destruction of the temple, the exile of most of the people from the promised land to the, uh, by the Babylonians. Like who? Just like Adam and Eve. So, the holy couple failed. The holy family failed. The holy nation failed. And be like, God, why do you keep making mistakes? <laughs> Even when there was a return from some, from exile, under Ezra and Nehemiah's time, when Ezra then, when they dedicated the temple, what happened? They dedicated the temple, and yet there were some people crying. Why were they crying? So oh, you saw the glory of the first temple. My God, you saw the glory of the first temple. Nehemiah comes back with so much zeal to restore the walls. He fought against the enemies, Tobias and Sambalat. He, you know, did all of them. They were happy. They dedicated. Nehemiah ate. Everybody was happy. The book of the Lord was now was led. It was read. Like, yes, restoration is coming back. Five chapters after, Nehemiah comes back. They were, they were working on the Sabbath. They were intermarrying, as God has commanded them not to. They were doing so many things. You know what Nehemiah said? Have you seen the end of the book of Nehemiah? You know what he said? God, don't forget those priests, that high priest, all of those people that, that, that spoiled the work I did. Don't forget them. <laughs> you know what he meant by don't forget them? Then he now said, God, don't forget everything me I did. God, remember me. Because these people are used I tried my best. That's how the book of Nehemiah ends. So even when there's a bit of promise, it looks like everything has failed. The project of God for over 1,500 years, it looks like it has failed. That's the news you will get. 
Except there were some people who kept on talking about how God was going to judge, God was going to judge, God was going to judge. They were called the prophets. And yet those people seemed to also have hope. It was like they didn't get the memo. Prophet Amos said, guess what? The Davidic monarchy will be restored. In that day, I will restore David's fallen shelter. I will repair its broken walls and restore its ruins and rebuild it as it used to be. Or prophet uh, Ezekiel, Ezekiel sees the people as sheep. Yes, they've gone astray, but God has said, look, you know what's going to happen? I will gather my sheep back together. I will gather them under a shepherd, David. Although if you read it, he also says, I will gather my children back together and I will be their shepherd. Who is the shepherd, David or is it God? The answer is yes. David or God? Yes. Because this shepherd is going to be a divine Davidic ruler. Both David and both God at the same time. Now, if you think I'm making this up, also think about Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 23, what does Jeremiah say in Jeremiah 23, verse 4 to 5? The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and will do what is just and right in the land. Okay, for David, a branch is a Davidic king, right? We see that. He's a Davidic king, right? Do we agree? Okay. In his days, verse 6, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called the Lord, Yahweh, our righteousness. A Davidic king that is also called Yahweh, our righteousness. He is both a Davidic king and he's also divine. And what about prophet Micah or Micah? Choose the one you want. He says that in the last days, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be exalted above every hill. In other words, he was talking about the temple. He's saying not just will the Davidic monarchy be restored, but the temple itself will be rebuilt. A more glorious temple than you've ever seen. One of them even says, the glory of the latter house shall do what? Exceed the former. And when you read Ezekiel chapter 40 to 47, even though we all get caught up with the measurements and all of those things, we don't know what's happening. Here's the point. That a temple will be built and we will say, Jehovah Shammah, the Lord is there. So what, that's what the prophets were saying. And Daniel, oh sorry, Isaiah actually sums it all up and he says, you know what this will be? It will lead to the creation of a new order. It's not just that the temple and the monarchy will be restored, but when they are restored, it will be like God creating the whole heavens and the earth. Behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, Isaiah says in chapter 65, 17 to 18. And it's so, it will be so good that, I know some of you are afraid of snakes. I know some of you are afraid of lions. He said the lion and the lamb will, not, will stay together. In Isaiah chapter 11, under this Davidic divine ruler. When Daniel then sees a picture in Daniel chapter 2, I have to quickly rush through it because time is gone. In Daniel chapter 2, he sees a picture of a stone cut out of the mountain that smashes the image of Nebuchadnezzar. And what does Daniel say? He says, in interpreting it, he's talking to Nebuchadnezzar. He says, After you, another kingdom will rise, inferior to yours. Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. 
Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything, and as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all others. In the time of those kings, verse 44, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. How many kingdoms? So first, they were taken to exile by the Babylonian kingdom. Then he now says another kingdom will come after that. That is the Persian kingdom, the kingdom of, Pers the, uh, of the Persians and the Medians, right? So if Babylon, if Babylon had Nebuchadnezzar, the Persians then had Darius, Cyrus, and all of those. But then he said a third kingdom will come. If you read the rest of the book of Daniel, you see that that is the kingdom of Greece, right? Alexander the Great and what have you. And then he said a fourth kingdom will now come, more ferocious than others. That was the Roman Empire. And so he says, when that one comes, then the Lord will now set up a kingdom that shall never end. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out from mountain, but not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron, bronze, and cleared the silver and gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. So he was saying there's a fourth kingdom, a Roman Empire, that is coming. And so Israel kept moving under occupation of each of these empires. So, but the people now under the Roman Empire are anticipating, according to the prophets, this Davidic divine ruler, let's just call him the Messiah. They're anticipating that he will come. And when he comes, what is he going to do? Do you remember Simeon at the temple in Luke chapter 2? What was he waiting for? The consolation of Israel. What was Anna waiting for? The restoration of Jerusalem. That is why when Jesus' disciples were talking to him in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, after he risen from there, they said, Will you now restore the kingdom to Israel? Because they totally misunderstood it. It is true that the gifts of God are irrevocable, and he was talking about Israel there. To them belong the adoption, to them belong the covenants, to them belong the patriarch. It is true. But they started to think that it was because they were a special people in their behavior of who they were. They started to pride themselves in their circumcision. They thought that God was going to restore the kingdom to them by destroying the Roman Empire and making their own kingdom great. They thought the problem was always with all the other nations because they were non-Israelites. They didn't have a problem and it's like you were never listening in the first place. He gave you all these commandments and you still messed it up. So their expectation of the Messiah was a military figure that was going to come and sack the Roman Empire. They were so wrong. The problem of the nations was also the problem of Israel. The problem that God, uh, God had raised Israel to solve, the bearers, let's put it this way, someone put it this way, the bearers of the promise were also bearers of the problem. What was the problem? It was sin in their heart. Their greatest tyranny was not the Roman Empire. Their greatest tyranny was the rebellious nature in their heart. And so when the Messiah was coming, he was truly going to be a Davidic king. But when his name was given to us, you would understand what he was coming to do. Matthew chapter 1, verse. I'm just going to read some verses there. Matthew 1, 18 20 and 23. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of who? David. Do not be afraid. Take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived of her is from the Holy Spirit. Father from David. 
conceived of her word, Holy Spirit. The Davidic divine. And then verse 23. She will give birth to a son. Uh, verse 21. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus. Because he is going to save people from the Roman Empire. Because he will save them from their sins. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him what? Emmanuel. Oh, I hope you see what's going on there. Remember we talked about presence. God is coming to his people. God is coming to his people. God is, he comes through his word. He comes through an angel. He comes through different things. He comes through the prophets. He comes through priests. He comes through a temple. But you cannot really see God and live. And here we have a human being conceived of the Holy Spirit, God himself, because his name is what? God with us. All these different mediators trying to tell us that we all need a mediator. But there is one man or one mediator between man and God. The man who is God, his name is Jesus. And he is that Davidic king who is now going to rule over a kingdom. Of the increase of his kingdom, there shall be no what? No end. So you start understanding where he's going when he says repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. He is the true temple. They get to another temple. Herod has built a temple so that the Jewish people will like him. It took him 46 years. He said destroy this temple and I'll raise it up in three days. Like are you joking? Do you know how long? Do you know how many contractors? Do you know how many uh, contractors? Well it took 46. Maybe there was corruption. It was like Nigeria. Do you know how much has gone into this thing? 46 years and you raise it up in three days. He said he was talking about the temple of his body because why he is the meeting place he is the temple god in the beginning was the word the word was with god and the word was god so that word that is god became flesh and dwelt or tabernacle remember build me a tabernacle so i will dwell that word became flesh and tabernacled with us, the meeting place between. In, in Hebrews chapter 3, he says he is the high priest of what we profess. Jesus is the one that fulfills. That's why he says the law, he did not come to abolish it. All the things you see in the law and the prophets, he was what they were talking about. So, I must, I must quickly wrap up. And you know, if I say I must quickly wrap up as a preacher, I, you know what that means. <laughs> but I will try to quickly. In 1 Timothy, when he says that, for there is one God between mediator of, uh, between God and mankind, the man Jesus Christ, who does, what does he say after? He said, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. So now he's coming to save the people. The kingdom of God is about the king who first saves his people. But how is the king going to do it? He's going to fight the enemies, yes, but not in the kind of warfare you understand. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood. So what does he do? In John chapter 19, he then goes, he goes to fight their battles. And you know what he does? Um, if I miss, yeah. John chapter 19, verse 19, 20. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. He was nailed on a cross. What was said on that cross? 
what was said on that notice? It read, Jesus Nazareth of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. His first throne was the cross. Because on the cross, when he said, if you are the king of the Jews, why can't you come down? And he's saying to them, stupid people, can't you see that I am high and lifted up? I am on my throne. I am bearing the sins of my people because I am their true king. I am saving them by staying. And so he's staying there, bearing the, bear, the, the, the wrath of God, all their sins. It was written in many languages. It was written in Aramaic, it was written in Latin, and it was written in Greek. Why? Because he wasn't only coming to bless the people that spoke Aramaic, the Jews. He was also coming to bless those who spoke Latin. He was coming to bless those who spoke Greek. Because when I am lifted up, all men shall come unto me. But he didn't remain on the cross. Because the kingdom, the establishment of the kingdom was moving somewhere. He did that to bear the sins of the people. But if he remained on the cross, how would we know he had vanquished his enemies? That is why when on the day of Pentecost, Peter is preaching a message. And what does Peter say in Acts chapter 2? God has raised this Jesus to life. We are all witnesses of it, exalted to the right hand of God. He received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit. And what he has poured out from now, uh, now, what you see and hear, David did not ascend to heaven. So he's the Davidic king. He's not David himself. David did not ascend to heaven. And yet he said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. They were trying to give him a throne in Jerusalem. He said, if I rule from Jerusalem, I will only rule the whole of Israel. I am not ruling Jerusalem. I am not ruling um, um, Judah. I am not just ruling the Roman Empire. If I have to rule the Roman Empire, I will have a city in Rome. I am the king of the whole world, and so I rule from heaven. He ascended into heaven after he rose from the dead. And now he says that he's waiting for all his enemies to be made his footstool. Now in Hebrews chapter 2, quoting Psalm 8, he said, but we don't see all his enemies. You know, there, is, there are terrible things. People are being killed. People are being slaughtered. False religions all around. He is not fully vanquished all of them. Why? Because the last enemy that shall be defeated is what? Death. In 1 Corinthians 15, he said, when he has vanquished it, then he will give the kingdom on to the Father. The last enemy that shall be vanquished is death. I will give you, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Now, most times we think about these as demonic forces, in some, because you are thinking about gates. And in some ways, you are not totally wrong, but you are not getting the force of it. The gates of Hades, Hades, in the, in, if you think in Hebrew, is mostly translated the grave. The gate of Hades, the gate that embraces people who die. And he's saying, look, when I build this church, whether Paul dies, whether Augustine dies, whether Athanasius dies, whether Christensen dies, whether uh, John Calvin dies, whether John Whitfield dies, whether Ajay Crowder dies, the gate of Hades shall not overcome it. Why? Because I have conquered death through my resurrection. All those that believe in me, 
one day, even though they die, they hear the voice of the word of the Lord and they shall come back to life. The gates of Hades shall not oh, overcome. Yeah. Listen, there is no problem that we face today that is greater than death. Yes. And it says that we should not fear the one who can destroy the body alone. Why? Because if he destroys the body, he cannot stop the resurrection. Hallelujah. And so the kingdom will be finally consummated when Jesus returns. And he says, all those who are in the graves, hear the voice of the Son of the Lord. And they come to their life. That is why the resurrection is not coming back from death. The resurrection is coming, going forth into life. A life that is indestructible. And we know that it can happen because Jesus, our forerunner, has already gone forth. So when he's talking about his kingdom, he's saying, what I'm trying to do is not save people from poverty. Even the kingdom that I will consume, there will be no poverty. He's not saying that I'm just saving people from pain. In the kingdom that will come, there will be no pain. There will be no, there will be no crying. There will be no tears. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And in that heaven and new earth, God came down. The dwelling place of God is now with men. So how do you enter that kingdom? The only way you enter that kingdom is through the forgiveness of sins. You go from one, from the dominion of darkness into the dominion of his son. Colossians 1. For he has rescued us from the dominion, one kingdom, the dominion of darkness, and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Don't let anyone fool you. There is no difference between the gospel of grace and the gospel of the kingdom. They are the same. Through grace, we enter into the kingdom. Through the forgiveness of sins. It's not by politics or election. It's not by some kind of business positions. It is through the forgiveness of sins we enter into the kingdom. And he gives us new life. Except a man is born again, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. This is how the kingdom advances. It's not of this world. That's why he says that this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached to all the earth for a witness and then the end shall come. All authority in heaven and the earth has been given to me. Then he says what? Go and make disciples of what? Do you see? It is in Jesus that the blessing of Abraham is fulfilled. All the nations of the earth will be blessed to you, through you. Go and make disciples of all nations. So I want to ask you, in closing, you see how everything is centered around Jesus? Because when he now makes a covenant with us by grace, he gives us laws. If you love me, keep my commandments. But he is the meeting place. He is the king. The question is this. Has the kingdom of God come in your church? The church is not the kingdom of God. But the kingdom of God should come into the church. That is why Jesus has certain titles in the church. He is the Peter says that all we are sheep have gone astray, but now we have returned to the shepherd, that's the overall pastor, shepherd, and the bishop or overseer. Are you the general overseer? Or is Jesus the real general overseer? He says he's the head of the church. 
Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for above. For as, the, as Christ is to the church that the, the husband is to his wife. I am not saying that we are not pastors. We are pastors, we are here. But we are under pastors. I'm not saying you are not an overseer if you are here and you have a church, but you are an under, or at least you should be an under overseer. I'm not saying you are not heading the church, but you should be an underhead. Remember, Adam and Eve were given dominion, but their dominion was derivative. So if I came to your church, would I know that that church is about Jesus or will it be about you? The way you organize your ministry, if you are not in pastoral ministry, but the way you organize your ministry, would somebody know that the kingdom of God through Christ is reigning here? Or would they know, think that it's all about you? Would we be really clapping for Jesus or would you be begging people to clap for you? <laughs> I want us to think about that as we go into our next session. Let us pray.